Alright, welcome back to part two of three with this coffee chat with Professor Mulkey. In this conversation, we talk about degrowth, we talk about carbon capture, we talk about the Amazon, and again, we go back into talking about the impact that the community can have, local communities. I also want to remind you that we have upcoming episodes with Professor Casey Feisler, uh, an AI ethic, AI ethics, excuse me, and author and educator Dr. Lucretia Carter Berry uh, about her book Teaching for Justice and Belonging. So be on the lookout for those two episodes, and we hope you enjoy this coffee chat with Professor Mulkey. Um, but I wanted to um, circle back on the framing that you do with your students and uh, with your with your courses as we see this slew of not great news coming out about all of these I don't know if you want to call them warning signs but all of these different different things happening around the globe um, that are kind of pointing to not a great situation both now and in the immediate future I was wondering how you frame that up for your students um, to not be overwhelming and to guide them through that process well, you know, the one thing I, you've got to do is tell them up front that our situation is dire. And that's, you can't pull any punches. Uh, you can't say it's going to be okay <laughs> because it's not going to be okay. We've already lost a lot and we're going to lose more. And action is now absolutely urgent. It's just unbelievably uh, it's unbelievable how much out of time we are. One of the things I tell the students is we have all the tools we need. So I give them some hope simply by pointing out what's available in terms of policy tools, economic tools, and especially energy alternative tools. And working group three is really a great place to uh, launch. I mean, there are all everything is laid out there in working group three of the assessment report number six. And so there, of course, the literature's starting to move on since assessment report number six. But one of the amazing things about that report is the intense amount of social science that is in working group three. That was not there in the AR5 or earlier assessments. And it's almost as if they shied away from the red-haired stepchild at the table of the sciences, so like the social sciences typically get, get short consideration. But uh, that social science is absolutely critical. And one of the things that's mentioned in either directly or in description several places in Working Group 3 is... Um, is a, a whole different model for economics that is um, degrowth. It's called degrowth. It's developed in France in the 1970s, and it now has major proponents among the economic community uh, all over Europe, less so in the United States. Many people in the United States have never heard of it. And when they hear the word, they say, oh, no, the, the economy has to grow. It's funny you mentioned that because I did want to bring that up. I was just reading a piece by, um, I believe it was Jason Hickel. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he was talking about um, degrowth. And I, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk more about that, that'd be great. Because I think, again, that's a, either a scary term for many or they have no idea what it means. There are several different alternative economic systems that we need to be talking about. 
Uh, degrowth is a planned reduction in of energy and resource use designed to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a way that reduces inequality and improves human well-being. Well, that's all wonderful. <laughs> Everybody can be happy hearing that statement. But it's all about reducing throughput. And so degrowth is not about reducing GDP, but rather about reducing that throughput of energy and materials. And it may decrease the rate of GDP growth. Overall, if GDP decreases with reduced throughput, this could be managed for the well-being of all. Degrowth is not a recession. Degrowth is planned, coherent policy, whereas recessions are not planned and they result in knee-jerk responses by government to impose austerity. Although um, Keynesian economics suggests that austerity is exactly the wrong response. Degrowth is discriminating approach to reducing economic activity. It, it seeks to scale down ecologically destructive and socially irrelevant production like planned obsolescence while expanding socially important sectors like healthcare, education, and collaborative management of resources. So degrowth is really a very specific phenomenon, a very specific approach. If you look back in the history of economics, alternative theories of economics, in 1972, there was the limits to growth by Donella Meadows et al., and that was a major work that used very simple models that turned out to be fairly correct. Uh, when it was re-examined um, uh, 40 years later, it basically still looks very sound. H.T. Uh, Odom, uh, an ecologist that spent his final years at the University of Florida, wrote a book called A Prosperous Way Down. And that was using his system that essentially is another version of degrowth. Another primary proponent of degrowth and interpreter is Timothée Parik uh, in France. And he is very articulate. Uh, you know, it introduces policies to prevent unemployment and unemployment, improve employment by shortening the work week. What a great idea. <laughs> uh, job guarantee with a living wage. A lot of capitalists would choke at that, but I don't. I think it is like housing first for the homeless. It's the approach that makes the most sense. And ending sectors that are destructive to living systems. There are many economic sectors we need to look at that simply get swept under the rug by neoliberal capitalism. Neoliberal capitalism, I'm not going to mince words here, it has raped this planet. That is the right word. Uh, it is just the extractive and destructive use of resources is taken as a given. And of course, one of the things that happened at the COP27 was an agreement on loss and damages. But there was a previous agreement at a conference of the parties and i think i want to say it was 2017 uh and none of the developed nations lived up to their obligation they were by by uh 
something like 2020, they were supposed to have been putting into the pot $100 billion a year, and nobody did. So is this one going to work? I don't have any faith. I mean, it, in passing, let me comment on, on the conference of the parties. The COP has absolutely zero credibility remaining. The next conference of 28, COP, COP 28 will be held in Dubai, the showcase city of a petro state. And the president of the proceedings is the CEO of one of the largest oil companies in the world. I, and how did you even explain that to students with a straight face as if, <laughs> as if they should have any faith in this process? I don't have any faith in it. It's completely lacking in credibility at this point. It's now owned by the fossil majors. How do you how do you explain that to your students, or how how does that conversation go? Well, I, I differentiate between the science, which is the IPCC uh, assessment reports, and the political process, which is the conference of the parties. The assessment reports, with the exception of the summary for policymakers, which 195 or so nations need to sign off on, and that includes political judgments. The assessment reports, especially the technical summaries and the full report, is where the scientists have their say. So my assigned reading to the students in my upper division courses is the technical report. I don't really want them to even spend time with the summary for policymakers because some of that is perfectly valid. It is correct, but they're, what's being omitted are stuff that in the technical summary appears. So for a beautiful example of that is the summary for policymakers uh, in working group one of the AR6 would have you believe that tech-based geoengineering is probably necessary and working group two. In other words, big iron, big machines, uh, sucking CO2 out of the air, capturing the CO2 and pumping it deep underground or deep into the ocean, that that's required. Well, carbon dioxide removal is required but when you read the technical summary of those two working groups, nothing in there that says that it has to be big iron. It has to be tech-based. It's mentioned. It's referred to. In fact, one of the chapters in uh, working group three, its lead author is um, an employee of Saudi Aramco. And, of course, that's the only chapter where it talks about mitigation using big tech. But everything else is either neutral or negative about it, as well it should be. Big tech has never worked, has never achieved even a fraction of its design specs, be it carbon capture at the smokestack or direct air capture. Uh, the, the big attempts at that have all failed. And there's no reason to believe that we have the technology to make that work. The second big objection to all of it is scaling. How do you scale this stuff fast enough in time and in space to be effective? It's gonna, you're going to have to burn a lot of fossil-based carbon to build these machines and to retrofit the power plants and then to 
take the captured CO2 and do something with it. Yeah. One of the one of the big perverse realities is that seven, right now 72% of captured CO2, which is mostly captured at the smokestack, uh, is uh, used for enhanced oil recovery. Most people have never heard of that, but 72% of that carbon dioxide is used as uh, a medium of a form of fracking. Wow. So oil wells produce it in three production phases. One is the primary production, which is the big gusher. The secondary phase is what we call fracking, where you have horizontal uh, fracking fluids pushed into the rock beds that forces more oil out of the fractures. And uh, then the tertiary production, and all of these get smaller, each, each hump is smaller. The tertiary production is produced with a combination of CO2 and, and water and so, some other chemicals added. So it's a form of fracking, but it gets the very last little bit of oil out. And of course the oil companies take that oil and refine it and sell it. You know, so 72% of the CO2 that is now captured is used for that purpose. Wow. I'm sorry, but that is just sick. It's, it's beyond perverse. And um, Bloomberg says that uh, by 2030, uh, enhanced oil recovery will only be about 10 or 15%. I don't believe it. First of all, you have to put the oil, the CO2 someplace. And where do you put it? Well, the most logical place to put it is uh, an old oil well. So the, the alternative is to somehow get it to the, the coast and then ship it out into the ocean and sink it deep into uh, the middle of the ocean where it will form a, essentially a CO2 pond uh, lake and it'll sit there for millennia. Well, okay. <laughs> the, the simple reality is stop putting it in the air to begin with. And if you're going to invest in something that is long-term management of carbon dioxide removal, invest in the world's ecosystems, both ocean and terrestrial. We're losing the Amazon. In fact, it may already be too late. We're, uh, the Amazon, of course, has been wrecked by uh, more proximal factors that have less to do with climate change, but climate change itself is now having a huge impact through teleconnections from the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. And um, it's the hydrology of the southern to the southern part of the basin, huge chunk of real estate has is being completely altered uh, by changes in rainfall and humidity. And uh, that in turn is has a teleconnection of all places to Antarctica and to the Tibetan Plateau, to the Western Antarctic Ice Sheet and the Tibetan Plateau. Of course, this is this is all tipping point modeling, but if you don't believe in tipping points, it, perhaps you've been living under a rock. Can you explain uh, some tipping point modeling for us? Uh, tipping point modeling takes, it's essentially complex earth system modeling 
where you take uh, both the living portion of the earth and the oceans and the, the atmosphere all the way up to uh, the rim of space, to the top of the atmosphere, these earth system models uh, then ask the question, at what point will there be a, a regime shift in certain parts of the system? Tim Linton in the UK is the the lead investigator on many of these studies, but many, many other studies have followed him. And so uh, a regime shift is where you hit a threshold and you tip into a different uh, climatological regime from which recovery is not possible within any meaningful human time frame. It will take many millennia, if ever, because the entire Earth will, is in dynamic flux. And so the expectation that somehow if we stop emitting and we implement comprehensive carbon dioxide removal, we will somehow return to what it was in uh, 1990 <laughs> is unrealistic. That will never happen. Uh, many things have already tipped into a regime shift. For example, if we stopped emitting tomorrow, in other words, went to zero emissions tomorrow, the permafrost would only partially recover and then take many hundreds of years to come back fully, uh, if ever. Uh, ocean thermal expansion will continue for thousands of years. Uh, more or less on its current trajectory. So, but what will happen is the temperature in the troposphere well, where we live will respond fairly quickly. That will have positive effects, not just for human well-being, but also for crops. But we're still going to have enormous problems with water, and we need to address those problems um, much more creatively than has been done with the Colorado River, for example, which is a mess you know, and yeah, has I, been for decades. I just, um, I, I think it was a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruling that um, they, the U.S. doesn't have to supply clean water for the Navajo nations. And someone had mentioned that this is basically an extension or you know, this is how water, quote unquote, water wars are going to look um, in the beginning, right? This is the legislation yeah. that's going to. Well, it's, it's also uh, the Navajo Nation has been fighting these issues for decades, especially about water. Yeah. And, you know, how do you not have uh, people that you're, the government is partly responsible for? and not manage the water resources for those people. How do you not do that? I mean, I just, it's immoral. The morality issues, the moral hazards that are created by climate change are manifold. And they're both basically created by Western high development index countries uh, like the US and those in Europe. Um, so, you know, it's, um, there's, you know, it's still an extension of colonialism when it comes to the global South. Yeah. Obviously, Australia is an exception, but uh, it's still colonialism. And, you know, 
some of the mitigation proposals out there that are being taken very seriously involve using the global south to draw down CO2 so the global north can continue to live its um, obscene way of life. And it is obscene. It really is. You know, I, George H.W. Bush uh, made the bold statement at the Rio conference in 1992. He said, the American way of life is not up for negotiation. Really? American exceptionalism? Really? It's not? When the entire planet is at stake and most of the emissions that are causing radiative forcing, most of the emissions in the air right now were put there by the United States. Yeah. I mean, how do you live with that, that knowledge? And per capita emissions in the U.S. are, of course, the highest in the world and have been since World War II. Now, I'm a beneficiary of that. I'm 70 years old. I was born in 1953. Uh, when I was in college, I didn't see any clouds on the horizon. I was, I was interested in traveling and seeing the world and doing all the stuff that young hippies would do. <laughs> but, you know, the, the main point here is that our expectations of what qualifies as a good life are un, unreasonable at this point in time. And it is still possible to have a meaningful and compassionate and decent life uh, through collaboration and cooperation and developing your communities. I mean, one of the things that's happened to us as a, as a species is we've isolated ourselves from our neighbors. All right, thank you for tuning in to part two of three of this coffee chat with Professor Mulkey. The third part of this conversation should be out next week, so be on the lookout for that. And also, quick reminder on the two upcoming episodes that we have with University of Colorado Professor Casey Feisler in AI Ethics. And after that, we will have author and educator Dr. Lucretia Berry, Carter Berry, excuse me, and her book, Teaching for Justice and Belonging. So be on the lookout for those two episodes. Thank you.